Okay, we're going to turn, please, to Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Some of you gathered with us here two years ago when we took studies in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 and saw the glories of the church. Our whole conference was called, Does the Future Have a Church? And we saw Paul's wonderful view of the church in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Now, this year we're pressing on into Ephesians chapter 4, this time just looking at the first 16 verses of that chapter, uh, taking a little each morning. I'm going to read with you just uh, the opening section then that we're going to be looking at this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord Jesus, we ask you to open up this passage of scripture to us. We pray as we move from session to session, Lord, we may be very conscious of hearing your voice. We pray for continuity that is not contrived but comes by the Spirit, that sense of being led along by you. We ask you, God, as we expose our thoughts, our hearts, our minds, even as we heard from John last evening, your word will shape our thinking. We will submit ourselves to God-appointed, God-breathed revelation that will do us good, not only individually, but corporately. And that, Lord, the nations shall see a people emerge who love truth, embrace it, obey it, celebrate it. So, Father, we come to you dependent upon you, Lord, dependent on the Holy Spirit, shimmering as we've been hearing, moving over us, quickening us, awakening us, giving us insight, helping us to let go of things that clutter our path, helping us to obey in areas where you might put the finger on disobedience. Oh, Holy Spirit, we are here for you. We thank you, Lord. When we think of the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, what you accomplished, we come as a similar number here, God. And we say, Lord, oh, that you would come down upon us. Oh, that you would move upon us with your mighty power, revelation and insight, bringing about obedience that's based on faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 marks a significant turning point in the epistle in that prior to this particular verse, Paul has been setting out really what God has done, what God's been doing. God's wonderful intervention in history in sending his beloved son and how the Lord Jesus came to us. We saw in chapter 2 before, and you'll be familiar with this epistle of course, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, how we were alienated, how we were led about by evil forces, how we ourselves were conformed to a world that was alienated from God and how God 
opened a way for us and created a new people. We are His creation. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. God has brought about a new people. He brought down the dividing wall. He abolished the enmity, the law that brought enmity. He dealt with what brought division between Gentile and Jew and embraced them together in Christ, giving the Holy Spirit as uh, down payment for the glorious future that awaits us. And so Paul is absolutely in rapture with what God has done. He just goes chapter after chapter, verse after verse, full of phenomenal revelation. He also prays two magnificent prayers that could have taken our time. Uh, it's a wonderful study to look into the sort of things Paul prays. If we get an insight into some of his longings, they'll teach us to pray. And we'll find that Paul gives himself first to instruction, then he intercedes for the people. He tells them what God has done, and he prays for them to have revelation, insight, that their minds might be opened, that may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then, having done all that, he begins to exhort them to respond. I want to spend a moment, really, just on that very first phrase that Paul is exhorting. He's appealing. He's entreating. He is looking for a response, and he doesn't take that for granted. John Stott says, instruction, intercession, and exhortation constitute a formidable trio in the weapons of any Christian leader's armory. And they should play a part in every leader's life. That we set out truth, we don't exhort before we've told truth, we set out what God has done, we cry to God, that God will own what we have said. And then we begin to look for response in view of the fact that God is the first mover. Now I want to just underline the necessity for exhortation. Revelation, I've said in the notes you might like to refer to from time to time, especially you'll find some quotes there that might be helpful to follow having them before you. I've said here, although Paul has communicated doctrine and revelation of magnificent proportions, declaring all the breathtaking initiatives that God has taken, the extraordinary status into which each Christian's been brought, he doesn't take for granted that Christian standards will automatically follow. He has said we are God's creation. God took the initiative. God rescued us when we were helpless, hopeless, alienated. God did it all. God did it all. And God showed such phenomenal kindness and grace to us. He demonstrated his willingness to work in spite of all the things that disqualified us. Now, Having said that, Paul's saying to us, now you need to respond to this. We need to be careful when we have been a movement, really, that has emphasized grace, that has wanted to underline we're free from legalism, we've died to the law, we've been discharged from that by which we were bound. We're now free, hallelujah, a glorious liberty for the people of God having been loosed from the shackles and the bondage of the law. Paul in Galatians says, now stand fast in that freedom. Don't submit again to the yoke of bondage. He's talking about law. He says, don't go back under it. You're free agents. Stand fast for freedom. Christ has freed you. And you might say, well, how do you live the holy life then? Well, he goes on to say, be filled with the Spirit. 
what Gordon Fee calls the ultimate imperative. You need God's energy. You need God's help. You need God's strength. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out upon that company, it says that none of them counted the things they possessed as their own. They shared. There were none that had any needs. The things that had been in the law, which they never kept in the Old Testament, of sharing, caring, releasing poverty, sharing all their possessions, counting them as not their own, what the law could not accomplish, God accomplished sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh that we, who live in the Spirit, might fulfill the just requirement of the law. In other words, if you're full of the Spirit, you will live the godly life. So you're free from law, full of the Spirit, you will live the godly life. You might say, well, why exhort anybody then? Why do you still say, now come on, live out the life. And sometimes when there's been a grace emphasis, and I've sometimes heard this kind of a response, and sometimes in one or two songs I've heard sung, there's almost a suggestion, there's nothing more to do, folks. Just relax into that grace. Just enjoy the fact that the Holy Spirit will produce it in you. And if that is all there is to say, then there's no need for exhortation. There's no need to say, come on now, I appeal to you, take action. Why? And sometimes you get a response, hey Terry, don't put us back under pressure. Well, you as a leader may find that. I was speaking to a a guy in another nation uh, some time ago about something I thought he would be calling his people to do, and he hadn't, and he said, but you taught us grace. I don't want to put them back under pressure. I don't want to be legalistic towards them. No, I said, no, exhort them. I said, exhort is a Bible word. He said, but you taught us grace. Well, Paul teaches us grace, and then he exhorts on the back of it. Though we are free from law, and no longer under law, though we might well be, and I trust are continually being filled with the Spirit, we still need exhortation. Do not fear to bring exhortation. Now, bring instruction first. Bring revelation of what God has done first. Don't just load burdens on people. But don't see exhortation as somehow putting people back under law. Because it isn't. Now, the way we handle it is of vital importance. But exhortation is not a dirty word. We need to beware the danger. You see, Augustine said this, Love God and do what you like. Now, there's a, in the heart of that, there's a wonderful truth. Love God and do what you like. If you love God with all your heart and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that's what happened, really, on the day of Pentecost. Suddenly, God's love was poured out in their hearts. And they suddenly found themselves sharing, doing things that they'd never found natural before. They loved God and did what they liked. And what they liked was selling their property and sharing it with one another. It was flooding their hearts. God's Holy Spirit gave them motivation. But we are not yet in the perfect. And so we need exhortation. There'll come a time when we will be in glorified bodies, living on a glorified planet, when all that defiles and Satan himself will be destroyed. There'll then be no more need for exhortation. Imagine a day when even your body is glorified, when you don't feel any 
lusts of the flesh or laziness or... You see, I can love God and do what I like, but I can sit and read the newspaper because I've got a very industrious wife. So I'm loving God. I really love the Lord and I just think I'll read the newspaper and I see Wendy's rushing around. Now, if I, I still love the Lord, but I love this news and this newspaper and I love this wife who does all this work. I also need to hear a scripture that says, Rise up, O sleeper! And Christ will give you life. You see, you can, you can say, well, don't put me under pressure. Hey, we still need exhortation because I haven't yet got a glorified body. I still have a lazy body. I still live in a world that is buffeting me with wrong values. Still, Satan is trying to withstand my advance. And so, although I'm not under law, and although I might be filled with the Spirit, I still need to be exhorted. And you as leaders, brothers and sisters, we need to exhort, we need to encourage, we need to say, now come on, don't be frightened and don't be kidded by those people that say, oh, come on, we're hanging loose now. We're not under law, let's just go with the flow and there's a real danger that we can miss it. Let's see then that Paul is unashamed to challenge people with exhortation and don't be put off by people who say to you, well, but we're not under law now. Now come on, let's exhort, let's beware of passivity. And for ourselves too, not just exhorting within the body, not just exhorting one another and admonishing one another, but also for ourselves, we are to work out our salvation. We are to respond to what God has done. Therefore, this passage begins with, therefore, Paul is saying, in view of all that God has done, I want you to respond. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, therefore is a word which in a very practical way tells us how to read the scriptures. In the light of this word, therefore, we must say that sanctification is not a gift to be received. It is rather something that has to be worked out in the light of the doctrine. All right, so God has done all these things for us. Therefore, we are going to respond. We're going to take action. We're going to be diligent. We're going to add to what God has done in terms of response in the way that 2 Peter and chapter 1 tells us as well. We respond in view of what God has started. Amen? So when there are exhortations, let's make sure we have a good heart. And when we're admonishing, when we're instructing, we need to look for right responses. So Paul makes this appeal, and he's not ashamed to make it personal. He says, I, therefore, and uh, the ego is emphatic. He's saying, listen, I am making this appeal to you. In the church, we have relationships. The scripture isn't impersonal. Church isn't impersonal. It's not inappropriate for you as a pastor to appeal to call for a response. It's one of the gifts that you have as a leader. When we're looking to take some fresh step to church plant, maybe to subdivide cells, or multiply them even, um, or to raise an offering. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to urge on a personal basis. Paul is unashamed. In fact, he kind of lays it on. I, the prisoner of the Lord. He's not just saying, it is written. He's saying, I'm asking you. And part of the grace that's on you as a leader, if you are truly an anointed, gifted, called leader, is that you will find you can call people to do things, and they will find in their heart, yes, 
because the Holy Spirit is involved in that. So let's not only look to letter, or it says in the Bible such and such, though obviously always based on truth. Don't be ashamed or frightened to call for personal response to your leadership gift. Let's not be ashamed in this democratic generation to understand there is anointing to lead. And Paul is unashamed to use that personal appeal. He's asking them to respond. And Paul has a passion, really, to see Christ glorified among the nations. That's where all his urgency comes from. He is primarily a missionary, if I can say that. He's an apostle. He's one who's called to go. He is full of passion for the unreached, as Simon brought to us in that very opening session. All his theology is not worked out in some academic context with columns and columns of writing and books on shelves. He's a man passionately committed to taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so when he's going to start talking now about their Christian conduct, he's not just looking for a high moral ethic. He's not just looking for nice people. We need to understand all his urgency comes out of his awareness. This is the uniquely privileged called people of God. And all our Christian ethics come from that base. You can't understand Christian ethics and morality without the revelation of the Christian's unique calling. I get so weary of hearing on the radio, on news programs, of people commenting on what the church should do or say or think. Or what Christian morality would have to say on this issue when they've never even understood what the church is. That the church is a uniquely privileged people who are acknowledging I was in the dark, I was in bondage. God came to me, opened my eyes. He brought me into a body. He brought me into fellowship. In a minute we're going to be talking about humility and lowliness and gentleness, not as isolated moral virtues. Not to say, look at this person, oh, he's like Mahatma Gandhi. He's so kind of humble and lowly and an isolated morality. That isn't the point. The point is, Paul is looking for a glorious church. That's his passion. His passion is to fulfill what he talked about back in uh, chapter 3 and verse uh, 9, to bring to light what's been hidden as the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. He's got a high ideal. He wants to demonstrate God's glory through the church, in the world, and even to principalities and powers. His desire then that we should be gentle, lowly, meek, forbearing. It's not so that I can say, oh yes, got a strike for that. Yes, very lowly person, very humble person, very forbearing person. That isn't the point. Christian ethics are worked out to help this body become a phenomenal expose of the glory of Christ. And so all these values are worked out in a context which the world hardly understands at all. Not to be seen. And virtually every fruit of the Spirit, for instance, listed in Galatians chapter 5, have to do with helping this community live this lifestyle. Be this people. So that the light of Christ shines in the nations. As Lincoln says, the appeal to live worthy of God's calling presupposes that God's gracious initiative requires a continuous human response. And that his call bestows both high privilege and high responsibility. 
We need to see Christ glorified. So that's going to affect how we relate to one another. Not just for my personal, individual piety, but to produce a people for the glory of God. Do you put that kind of attention on relationships? Beloved, we can't afford to have bad attitudes to one another. There's so much at stake. There is so much that is not known about Jesus. And we are to be bringing a clear, clear picture through our lifestyle and through our fellowship particularly. And again and again, I've noticed this simply pragmatically, that people who come in through things like Alpha, they come to Alpha tables and meals, and often they're observing things we don't even know on display. Just the way people serve, the way people are with one another. They come in on a Sunday and they say, what was that? Why did we cry? What were we being exposed to? And they are suddenly seeing the glory of the church. They hardly understand it, but that is our calling. And that is our purpose. And so relationships are not just for my virtue. Tick, 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 I'm doing well. But to get this glorious church on display. And so Christian unity is where we're pressing through here. Depends on excellent attitude and conduct. And Paul starts by saying, I want you to bear with one another in love. Love is the key word in this passage. The high goals that Paul seeks to attain can only be accomplished by people who walk in love. A few uh, pages earlier, he's been speaking, as it were, describing a beautiful picture of a glorious church. Magnificent revelation in chapter 3. Now, he starts looking at the raw material with which we've to produce that picture. And it's made of the likes of you and me with all our difficulties, all our problems, and he's going to take hold of these bits of jigsaw and somehow bring us together to make that picture. And that's only going to work if we know how to walk in love. That's only going to work in your town, in that new church planting. We can be so excited about moving into town A or B or C with this little community and say, we're a church plant. I tell you, if that church plant don't love one another, bear with one another... We will never turn the lights on in that town. You may have visits from Ephesians 4 ministries as we'll look at tomorrow. You may have all kinds of exposure to excellent doctrine, excellent books. If we don't know to bear with one another in love, we will never produce what God is after. It's, uh, uh, it's absolutely fundamental. So forbearance is fundamental. How do we get to live in this lifestyle? Well, Paul gives us the clues in the passage. He talks about with humility, lowliness of mind, not having a high view of ourselves. As Paul says in Romans 12, 16, not high-minded. Now, the word he uses is a word that his contemporaries would never have used as being a positive word. It was regarded dismissively, the very word that he used. So Robinson says here, to the Greek mind, humility was little else than a vice of nature. It was weak and mean-spirited. It was the temper of the slave. It was inconsistent with that self-respect which every true man owed to himself. So there's a, a concept here that this is foreign to being manly. And there's an invitation, Paul is using a word that doesn't shock us, really. Uh, We don't perhaps feel 
the shock of it. But Paul dips his hand into another world and takes this word out and says, I want you to be like this. And when they first heard it, it would have been a shock to the system. Because that's a horrible thing to be. There's something about that that doesn't give me honor, pride. There's no macho about this. And so often when we get into relational problems, that can be our problem. Well, he started it. She started it. And until he turns around, until he does this, until he changes, I am not going to. And Paul is saying that is not going to win the day. It's not good enough for us. It's not going to accomplish what God is after. There has to be that humility and gentleness. Now, I know we've dealt with these issues before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. But that has to be continuously looked at. We need to say, the way I live in good relationship with one another is having a good attitude and clear understanding of who I am. I need to have a humble heart, a spirit that's broken in, not standing on my own rights, willing to yield, patient. And the word literally means long temper as opposed to short temper. Some people say, I don't suffer fools gladly. What you really mean is, I'm easily irritated. If we're going to walk in love, we've got to be long-tempered. And especially as leaders, it's something we have to cultivate, has to be part of our lifestyle. We will never build something if we're easily just uh, losing our temper, not seeing a thing through, not hearing people through. God wants us to watch that and be diligent in preserving that. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. Marcus Barth says in his commentary, it's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant. Excluding passivity or a wait-and-see attitude. Paul is talking about real urgency. He's saying, it's up to me, it's up to you, it's, it's not to be left to the other person, see what turns out, see if he changes his mind. We've got to be diligent, that's got to be bottom line, our attitude, we've got to make sure that we work on that, often there are matters of timing, often there are matters of choosing good moments to build with people, but you never abandon your desire and attitude to re- build relationships. You never entrench yourself. You don't allow yourself to build a fortress around yourself, finding all the fault in the other person. You may not have easy opportunity to build bridge, but don't allow your heart to harden against another brother or sister. It's of huge importance. We are to make every effort. I would recommend San's book, The Peacemaker, which is downstairs, I believe. I want to encourage you. Let's make this high priority We give ourselves to it. It is our responsibility. Again, as I say, not just for my comfort and peace of mind, but for the glory of Christ, for his great church to be magnificent. Going on, it speaks of maintaining then the unity of the spirit. Now, here we're not talking so much about the human spirit. We're talking about something that God has already done for us. I'll just read the fee quote here. The unity of the spirit does not refer to some sentimental or esoteric unity that believers should work towards. Rather, Paul is speaking of something that exists prior to the exhortation. Whether they like it or not, their lavish 
experience of the Spirit, which they have in common with all others who belong to Christ, has made them members of the one body of Christ, both on the larger scale and in its more immediate expression in the local community. The unity of the Spirit is the unity which the Holy Spirit gives. It's something from without. It isn't just because we all happen to be pleasant people. It's something deposited on us. On the day of Pentecost, first the 120, then no doubt the 3,000, were flooded with the Holy Spirit. There was a unity which was not the result of consideration. It wasn't whether somebody liked somebody else. It wasn't the fruit of having common uh, ideals and thoughts and preferences. These were people from every situation. Suddenly, they are flooded with the Holy Spirit's presence. There is a supernatural love, joy, peace flooding the whole context. And the church is to be a people so filled with the Spirit, God himself giving his unity to us, then we are to diligently preserve that. We are given something that we didn't create. Our responsibility is to beware any danger of offending it, of breaking it, of marring it. Our responsibility is to guard the unity, making every effort to guard that supernatural unity which God gives. Now, when the Spirit is given in revival, and even I would say back in 94.5, when there was a peculiar outpouring of the Spirit, there was a sense of love and warmth and joining that was supernatural. It characterized people coming together. Old things were uh, put behind people. I saw people forgiving one another, hurts that were just left behind because of this incredible outpouring of the Spirit's presence. God did it. Now our responsibility is to guard that. Jealously guard what God supernaturally gives. And we are to see that as our responsibility in the bond of peace. Again, that's not something that is to do with inner tranquility, as Fee says here, uh, but as the necessary shalom that Christ effected in bringing an end, first of all, to the hostility between God and people, and secondly, to the similar hostility between peoples. He goes on to say, the war is over, let us keep the peace. There is a peace that's not to do with my individual peace of mind. And if you look at the context, wherever Paul uses this phrase, you'll find it has a sense of the community, not of something inward as its emphasis. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's very easy for us to take a verse like that and speak as though it has to do with my demeanor, how I feel. But in context, it almost certainly has to do with the community. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace, shalom, living together in love. He says, do the things that make for peace, a couple of verses later. Peace among you. Peace enjoying God's favor. You walking in good fellowship in your local community? You out of step with anybody? It's hugely important that we want to see the glory of Christ. There's more at stake than your rights. There's more at stake than, well, he hurt me. She offended me. It's much bigger than that. We've got to lift our petty little squabbles up into that place when the name of God and the Lord Jesus 
is glorified or not, depending on how we relate. That's Paul's urgency. That's his passion. And that's where we're to be. But that's our desire. Is that where you are? It takes lowliness. It takes a willingness to say, okay, I'll come down. I, I feel I'm right, but I'll come down to meet you. You may have to humble yourself out of a diligence to say, we must see this through. For us as a movement, as we scatter further and further afield across the nations, maybe hearing things, why did he do that without asking? How could she do that? She didn't. And, and you can find all kinds of things that the enemy would love to drive wedges in, separate people, stop people, build distrust, build alienation. If we're going to do a great work for God, beloved, it's got to be our passion. So no, I'm going to walk in love. I'm not going to hear things. I'm not going to let anything come between us. I'm going to work at this. Can we do that? I'm urging you. I'm appealing to you. God set us free from law, but not just so that we can do what we like and tread on other people. God's filled us with the Spirit, not so that we can just enjoy ourselves, but that we can for the energy of God to live godly to glorify Jesus. And so Paul's coming in with this passion. He's saying, come on, let's live this way. Then he goes on to say, now, our unity is deeply rooted in God. And although we might say the first three chapters of doctrine, then comes exhortation, which is kind of roughly true, he's back again, underlining with theological reasons, if you like, the basis of our unity. And so quickly he moves back and says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Leon Morris says, the style is staccato. The scarcity of verbs. He said, we can insert there is, which isn't in the Greek, at the beginning. But Paul actually starts right in with one body, one spirit, one hope. Paul simply has a series of nouns, each preceded by one. The word one runs through the whole section. Seven times Paul uses this word. Clearly, it is important for him that believers are one. There it is, one, one, one. Paul is punching home his argument. He says, I want you to get hold of this. We can't afford the luxury of splitting off. There's only one. And he goes through one after another of these statements. Most of our troubles, says Lloyd-Jones, arise chiefly from the fact that we persistently start with ourselves. We're too subjective. This is the, one of the main results of sin. Sin puts himself in the center. We're looking for God to persuade us of the importance of the one. And then you'll see, as he begins to unfold this, the place of our unity being rooted in God, rooted in the Trinity. In fact, the church on earth is to be a demonstration of the oneness of God. This is our high privilege, the mystery of the Trinity, the heart of the wonder of the whole universe. I'm more and more fascinated with the Trinity and the love between the Trinity. I find I'm drawn to verses that speak about the love between the Father and the Son. 
and the delight and the preoccupation, the one with the other, the passionate love between Father and Son and Spirit. And I believe that's the most attractive thing in the whole cosmos. And it's a wonder that we have this extraordinary privilege we've been allowed to see the love between the Father and the Son. And we've seen on the earth, men had the privilege of seeing it, touching and handling the Son of God who lived constantly. I want to please my Father, please my Father. Who said, the Father loves the Son. He's revealed all things. He, that was Jesus' preoccupation. I am loved by my Father. And the Father's preoccupation, delighting in the Son. And their oneness it was magnificent. Their unity of purpose, though their diversity of office and what they accomplished, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet their absolute oneness of goal and purpose and love and affection and mutual delight, even to the cross where the Son of God is outside the camp, suffering beyond our imagination, taken away from men, away from God. Why? Out of wanting to please the Father, doing what the Father wanted, whatever it cost. He is giving us a demonstration. He's saying, listen, he is worth trusting. Whatever Satan said, has God said, I have come down from heaven to show you he is worth trusting whatever he puts on your day, your diary, even if it's a cross, even if it's shame, even if it's blood and, and hanging naked with excrement and the shame of it, the horror of it, even death on a cross. I want you to know I love him. I'll do what he wants me to do. That's the heart of creation, the Father and the Son. Total love, total delight in one another. The Father looking on with utter pride and joy and delight that he has such a Son who will do this. The Son saying, I will do whatever it costs to please you, Father. And you and me, people who would prefer sin, who are fascinated with evil, find here, come in. Come and taste some of this. Come and know something of the fellowship of the Trinity. Here, I'll pour some of my love out in your heart by the Holy Spirit that's given to you. That you might feel it, know it. God's love poured out. That you might share in it. You might taste it. You might enjoy it. And enjoying it with God, spilling over to one another. That there might be a display and demonstration. On the earth, we the church of God in its glory and majesty, reflecting something of the diversity and unity in the Trinity. That's our calling. It's massive. The church is wonderful. The church is glorious. In a day when people want to give up on church, in a day when people are ignoring church, I want to set the church so high because it's so high in the Scriptures. It is a reflection of the glory and the love within the Trinity. The beauty of that love, untainted, unspoiled, Lived out perfectly in a fallen, ugly world. Jesus could still live it out. He could still keep withdrawing. Maybe he'd pray all night. Maybe he's up a great day before, time before day, fellowshipping, enjoying in every situation, listening to the Father, doing what the Father says. It's wonderful. That love, that love between Father and Son, the Holy Spirit present, enabling, supporting. Hallelujah. What a wonderful thing we've been gathered into. Beloved, the unity of the church, not just keeping the rules, not just keeping it pleasant. It's a privilege to reflect something of the glory of the unity of the Trinity. So Paul is saying, listen, I want you to bear with one another. I want you to 
Love one another. I want you to stand together. I'm in prison. I, I, he lays on the pathos. I, the prisoner of the Lord. I'm appealing to you. Please do this thing. I want to appeal to you. I want to say to you, any church plant, any big church that might start be having some sort of breakthrough to impact a town because of its success, we will never do it unless we bear with one another. Traveling teams. We've got to do it. We've got to see this, and then Paul starts arguing it. There is one body. So Paul starts, really, with where they are. He begins to speak about the Trinity, but he doesn't use the normal order, if you like, creedal order, Father, Son, Spirit. He reverses the order, if anything, does the same in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 and 6. It's like he starts where they are. They're conscious of being in a body that's been formed by their experience of the Spirit. So he starts with the Spirit, but he starts actually talking about the one body. One of Paul's favorite illustrations in connection with the church, particularly when emphasizing its unity. He's already used the word earlier in Ephesians. He is saying we are a body together. And it's not just a picture. It is how God sees us united, a many-membered body, the body of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth used to be the body of Christ, if I can put it that way. Jesus of Nazareth, a man walking this earth, he was the body of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ. And we are a body with many members. That is God's call on us, his description of us. In spite of many groups and denominations, the true mystical church is only one. We must hold this very clear in our thinking. It's so important for us. Down through the centuries, there has actually only ever been one church. We must never think, oh no, we're starting. It all started in such and such a time. It started with the charismatic, or it started with the outpouring of the Spirit in 1904, or it started with the Reformation, or it started with... No, no, no. I was approached once by uh, an Anglican who said to me, well, your church is a very young church. Your whole movement only started back in the 60s, this restoration. He said, our church has been going for five centuries. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, our church has been going 2,000 years. It's very important that we don't see church anything other than the scriptural picture, the, the mystery. Of, there's only one church. And with all our passion to highlight areas where we need to, as I've said in my uh, book, turn up the contrast. Sometimes we have to turn up the contrast. And now listen, we must do this, not this. And sometimes uh, even a chapter like that in a book can seem kind of divisive because of highlighting differences. But beloved, my passion is this, that we are one people under truth. It isn't that we say a plague on your house because we, we're going to be different, we're going to be distinctive. That's not where we're coming from. And even down through the history of the church in the Old Testament, you would find people like a Joseph who was a visionary, who saw something in the future that God had and for a season seemed to be forced outside, but he never said a plague on Abraham's house. I'll start something new. Ultimately, he gathered the nation again. Ultimately, David, forced out by Saul, gathered the nation again. Even Gideon, with his little cut-back army, when the battle was won with Midian, he brought the whole nation in again. It should always be our longing and desire to bless the whole body. 
So sometimes it'll be hard to read us because sometimes we are emphasizing this distinctive, this distinctive, this distinctive. Other times we do something to say, how is it you have fellowship with him? What is Terry doing with these guys? Well, in our hearts we're wrestling with this really difficult thing that we're saying, that one is born of God. Do you know what God thinks of him, of her? He thinks he's wonderful. He's the darling of God's heart. Now he's out of step with me, so I've got a problem. But I will not say a plague on you then. But I will say, listen, here are the distinctives. We must fight for. We must change the expression of Christianity. Even in our own nation, as debate is in our newspapers, headlines in the Times this last week about new appointments within the state church, we're going to have to say things. And even our brothers within that church are saying things. They're speaking to Tony Blair. They're saying, hey, this won't do. But we have to learn what it is to speak clearly and yet at the same time to say, no, we must not just say you are outside. Somehow we retain love, but we speak with absolute clarity on the issues. It's of huge, huge importance because ultimately there is only one body. The Bible says, love the brotherhood. And the brotherhood isn't NFI. It's not just New Frontiers, it's the whole brotherhood. We're to honor the church of the living God. So there's only one body. There's great diversity in members as in a human body, nevertheless one. Even down, as we saw in the last series of studies, to uniting Jew and Gentile. That is phenomenal. We won't get into that all over again. There are tapes of what we did here two years ago, if you want to dig into that. One body then. There is only one body. And that's to be something that we live in our heart with. We genuinely... Is that in your heart? It's so important that we truly respect and love the church of the living God. Secondly, there's one spirit. One spirit. Now that, again, as I said earlier, it was that manifestation that that's what made them realize we're part of a community. It's the Holy Spirit that made them know we are one now. It was the new demarcation of this new people. They were flooded with the Spirit. It's what God had promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what demarked them was the temple and the food laws and circumcision. And they knew who were the people of Israel. They kept the feast days. They were, had all these demarcations. Now, there's a new people on planet Earth. And they haven't all got Abraham's blood. Some of them have. Some of them haven't. How do you know them? Well, the Spirit's been poured out on them. The Holy Spirit made them one, Jew and Gentile. That was their experience. Now, behind that comes loads of theology later. Paul will write epistles. Peter will write epistles. But on the day of Pentecost, the way it happened, they heard a message, the Spirit fell, and they were one Spirit. That was the way it happened to them. That is how they experienced Acts 2.4, they were all filled with the Spirit. Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Spirit. We often highlight the individual experience of the Spirit coming upon us. Most biblical stories are about groups being flooded with the Spirit. Probably the Apostle Paul is the only single one that we can read about in the book of Acts. Usually it's groups being flooded with the Spirit together. That was the overwhelming common uniting experience. There's one 
Spirit as they stood with one another, experiencing, tasting something of the future together. And Paul was urgently wanting to know, did you receive the Spirit? Acts 19, when he came to those uh, 12 at Ephesus, he didn't say, are you saved? He said, did you receive the Spirit? Even in Galatians 3, when he says, uh, did you receive receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He doesn't say, were you saved by works of the law, by hearing with faith? It's, did you receive the Spirit? Even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 8, he makes a similar reference uh, to uh, the Spirit. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Spirit to you. It doesn't say the God who saves you. It says the God who gives his spirit to you. For Paul, it was a big prior, prior thing. God's given the spirit. He's fulfilled the promise of the Old Testament. The covenant of the spirit has come. That's what made them one. They were enjoying the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Covenant. I will pour out my spirit. I'll take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. They were one body by their common life in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, we were all baptized in one Spirit, into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So, in terms of their actual experience of unity, it was the phenomenon of the Spirit coming to them that made them first aware, this Jew and this Gentile, hey, we're one. That's how they got over the Cornelius problem. How can we stop these Gentiles who've received the Spirit as we have from being baptized? It was the Holy Spirit then that showed that they were one. The Holy Spirit. So they were one body. The Holy Spirit was one Spirit. And not only is the Spirit a present experience, but He speaks of the future. He's the foretaste and guarantee of future Inheritance, which brings Paul on, no doubt, to say the one hope. Because the Holy Spirit is beckoning you on to the hope that lies ahead. We are an eschatological people. We're a people of the end time. We're a people who are tasting of the powers of the age to come. The new age has broken into the present, and the Holy Spirit on us tells me, I don't belong to this passing age. It's not around for much longer. I am tasting of powers of another age. My citizenship is from somewhere else. I'm awaiting the Savior. I belong somewhere else. The Holy Spirit is telling me that. He's awakening that realization. And so, again, my ethics are not just about morality. They're about living for another age. Living for another kingdom. So I'm not going to get taken up with money. I'm not going to be taken up with short-term things. I'm not going to be taken up with devilish concepts. He hasn't got long to go. We're going to live forever. And so our motivation is often to project forward. There's one hope that lies before us. Again, to see it corporately, dear friends. If you've not been a Christian very long, I do want to urge you to see one of the things we need to get saved from when we get saved is individualism. And just seeing ourselves, me, my fulfillment. God loves a people. He's always wanted a people. He loves people and he wants a people together. And so we to work it out together. So the hope isn't just my personal hope. 
is our hope together. And that goes right back into Jewish thought from the Old Testament. Lincoln says the one hope of the Ephesians is not something individual and private, but corporate and public. Hope for a cosmos that is unified and reconciled. A world in which everything is brought together in harmony through that which God has done in Christ. The writer recognizes that what his readers hope for in the end will determine what they practice in the present. The one hope of a final cosmic unity is therefore meant to produce the urgent effort to maintain and demonstrate the anticipation of this in the church. We are a model in time of a glory that's ahead. It's like we're just deposited out of the future, say, this is what it's going to look like. My church, this is what the glory is ahead for you. This is what God has for us. And we have a hope. We don't often feature in our thoughts enough about that hope for the future. There's a very dominant thought in the New Testament, especially when their experience in the present was tough. They suffered. Many were persecuted, even martyred. And so hope was something that helped. We have one hope. We've got a hope for the future. Romans 8.23. Not only this, we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one also hope for what he sees. He's saying what we've got now is not the complete picture. Paul even says, if this is it, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Because he suffered so much for the gospel. He endured such difficulty. No, he says the, the future is what we're hoping for, what we haven't yet seen. And he says the redemption, our redemption and the glorifying of our bodies. That's the part of salvation that's yet to be completed. My spirit has been saved. My body has not been saved. We're going to have a glorious new body. And not only that, it says in Romans 8, that the whole creation is waiting for that day. I haven't time to, to look there now, but I've been looking a lot in Romans 8. thought I was going to do Romans 8 in these three mornings, so I've spent a lot of time in Romans 8 lately and found myself really stirred and motivated by it all, where Paul says the world has been subjected to futility. As it says in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Futility everywhere. Doesn't make sense. That's the problem of the world, is waiting in futility. And it says waiting eagerly, on tiptoe, for what? The revealing of the sons of God. There is a future, not only for you and for me, but there's a future for the creation. The whole creation is looking forward. And somehow the future of the creation is inextricably tied up with the future of the church. The creation is waiting for the full manifestation of the sons of God. It's waiting for that day. Hoping, it says, groaning, suffering, the pains of childbirth. Not just random pain, childbirth. Pain that points forward to something. The whole creation is groaning, groaning. Jesus talked about earthquakes and wars. He said, these are the beginning of birth pangs. 
There's a birthing that's got to happen. There's the coming forth of the manifestation of the sons of God. When he appears, we shall appear with him. We're looking for the hope of his appearing. Not the hope of our disappearing. Right? We're looking for the hope of his appearing. And when he appears, we shall be like him. We should be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He is coming, and it says, in that moment, the creation will be set free from the, its corruption to share the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The very creation is itself distorted, futile, cursed, but that curse will be absolutely removed. The sons of God, we will be like him in a moment. We will be changed and the God will then bring forth a new heavens and a new earth. What a hope to have before us. What a wonderful future is lying. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 27, in the regeneration. We talk about an individual being regenerate, born again. He's saying the whole creation is going to be born again. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on his throne in glory. Acts 3.19, heaven must retain him until what? The restoration of all things. He's going to recover everything. Now that was back in Jewish thought, in their uh, hopes and plans and longings, in the prophetics uh, and the Psalms. You'll find in Psalm 96, verse 11, let me read it to you. The heavens will be glad. Let the earth rejoice, the sea roar, all it contains. Let the field exult, all that's in it. All the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Why? The Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. When he comes to judge, somehow the very creation will start applauding. The trees, the mountains, the fields. Verse 7 of Psalm 98, let the sea roar, all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy the, before the Lord. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness, the peoples with equity. There's going to come a day when the Lord will come and judge righteously. And the psalmists, and you can read about it in the, in the prophets, in uh, Isaiah 35, the wilderness will be glad. Isaiah 55, mountains and hills break forth into joyful singing. Why? Their season of futility will be over. The regeneration, the new earth. There's a hope before. There's a hope before for those Christians in Chinese prisons. There's a hope before for the suffering church in the Sudan. There's a hope before for us. There's a hope that lies before. There's a hope before that took that as waves of missionaries out in the days of Hudson Taylor and John Patton and others who laid their lives down. They went and only lived six months or, or a little longer. Why? For the hope that was before. And a big vision. Not only for the present, but for the future. There's one hope. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the redeemed will dwell in our glorified bodies on a glorified earth under glorified heavens. Amen? When you think of the beauty of the earth now, Wendy and I went to a magnificent garden in Holland, Kirkenhof. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. 
and you see people from all over Europe driving in massive, massing parking areas. And we walked in, and when we were there, the blossom was late, and the flowers were early somehow. So the blossom was still on the trees, but the bulbs and these magnificent tulips were out in full array. And the nearer you got to this magnificent garden, there were fields where it seemed as though God had just taken a paintbrush and said, we'll have a red field here, I think. And as far as the eye could see, it was just red. We saw it outside Brighton the other day, just the poppies, just a whole field, suddenly red. But here just red here, then we'll have this line yellow here, and we'll have this one orange. And you could see all around, but when you went into the actual park, it was so magnificent. The garden, beautifully arrayed, flowers everywhere. In fact, people seemed to walk quietly in hushed tones. The fragrance, the beauty, the color. It was almost intoxicating. And after a day there, you felt kind of heady as you came out. Wow, this is so beautiful. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There is a hope for us. Glorified bodies with no even flesh to drag me down. No Satan to tempt me. Hallelujah. A new body. The world passed away in terms of the value system. And only that which doesn't defile in this new body. Oh, hallelujah. There's a hope ahead. Beloved, there's one glorious, phenomenal hope. We need to be excited about that. And we need to be careful we're not drifting into not the the ocean of your love, we lose ourselves in heaven above. Just quoted that little hymn here. It's kind of Buddhism, really. (laughs) The Bible speaks about a recovery of the creation. God's going to win this battle. Satan is not stealing his... When he made it, it said, it is good. Then he cursed it. He's going to win this battle. It's going to be glorious again. It's going to have full outworking of his original promises. Isaiah 11, I'll just quickly read it to you. I didn't mean to spend this long on this, but it stirs me. Isaiah Isaiah 11, where Isaiah is writing about this prophetically for the future, speaking of what will be there for us. He says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Matthias says in his commentary, even a child can exercise dominion originally given to man. The cow and the bear will graze. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yes. Wow. One hope. Now we know there's lots of mystery. And we said, what a minute. We said we see, we're going to meet him in the air. But you know, in the parousia, that was a word that was used for an arrival of a presence, of a person. When an emperor came to a city, they would all go out to meet him. And then they would usher him back into the city. So don't be distracted by that. 
Right? We're going to meet him in the air. But he's going to have a new earth. Glorious, glorious earth. New heavens, new earth. New body. Wow, it's going to be fun, eh? <laughs> Don't let mysticism overshadow. Get the root, the feel, those Hebrew roots of our faith. It's right through the Psalms, right through the Proverbs. They had a hope of a glorious earth. But it would be recovered. God promised he's going to keep his promise. With all the nations in, in a way that they could never have conceived. But God will do it. There is one hope. Having this future hope, it unites us together. We've got a hope we can go and tell poor people who don't know what they're living for. The drug abuse going up and up and up on our uh, radios we reported last week. Drug abuse in this country just breaking all records. Why? What is it saying? They're saying futile, futile, all is futility. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Give me some more drugs. And we're saying, no, 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 there's a hope. There's a future. All that you love about planet Earth is going to be many times over more beautiful. The Matterhorn will look even more wonderful. A glorious, glorious future. One hope. One Lord. His unique person. I love that phrase in the story after the resurrection when Peter's been fishing all night. And then comes that voice through the early morning mist. Have you caught anything? And, and just that wonderful encounter. And Peter says, it's the Lord. And that's enough to jump off the boat. It's the Lord. There's one Lord. There's something in your heart when you're singing worship here and you sing, Lord. There's only one Lord. He is unique in his person. And Peter only was getting growing revelation at that time. He didn't fully understand. By the time he got flooded with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, you read his magnificent sermon. He understands. This is the Lord that was addressed. My Lord, my Lord said to my, take, reign, sit a king. Both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter came to see the fulfillment of the prophetic psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Peter's grasp of who Jesus was must have grown and grown, but then he eventually saw he is the Lord. The Lord who's being told to sit down at the right hand of God. There's only one Lord. He is unique in his person. One of Paul's favorite titles for Christ, Philippians chapter 2 tells us all about it. We don't have time to get into all that. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He is unique. He's unique in his work. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's unique in his relationship with us. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Christ is uniquely our Lord and, and Master. Not only objectively declared to be Lord, but also subjectively honored as our personal Lord. Amen? Our dear Lord. There's only one Lord. Unique. The only one. There's no one to rival him. No one could be set forth like him. The Father says, behold my son. Back in the Old Testament, behold my servant. Check him out. There's only one. Look at him. Our Lord. That's where our unity lies. We may differ this and differ that. Have hey, we've only one Lord. Focus on him. Love him. See how others love him. 
who disagree with you. See their passion for Jesus. You, sometimes people have said to me, how did you have him at Stonely? Have you seen how much he loves Jesus? His passion helps me to see, no, there's one Lord. He's helping me. He's helping me. It helps me to see there's one Lord. One faith. Now, probably this isn't a reference to subjective faith or the act of believing. See, what does he mean there's one faith? It's a difficult phrase, really. Well, it's probably not one act of believing, one subjective experience of faith. It's probably not, not a careful, detailed, finalized creed. So well, there's one faith. Oh, quick, tell us, you know, what was it? All the details. I don't think in this early primitive church that's what it literally would have meant. He's talking in Ephesians 4.13 about ultimately attaining to a unity of the faith. We'll come to that in a later study. Probably it's a reference to the basic certainty of salvation by faith in Christ. Knowing him to be Lord, receiving his gift of righteousness, the fundamental truth of salvation through Christ alone, which we express in our baptism. If indeed, Paul says in Colossians 1.23, if you indeed continue in the faith. I don't think that they would have worked out great detailed creeds as to what was in the faith, as though it was a package of doctrines, absolutely. But rather, the fundamental root of trusting in Jesus alone, his righteousness alone, knowing I am not trusting in my endeavor, but faith in his finished work. If you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You just see there in brackets, ESV, that's the English Standard Version, advertised in your handbook, recent translation just come out, which I commend to you as a really, really helpful translation. Someone said that it's got the reliability of the NASB, which is high praise indeed, and the readability of the NIV, which is high praise too, but is an accurate and very helpful, fresh translation. I believe you'll find that it is downstairs. One baptism. Strange to think of baptism as a uniting factor. We don't tend to think of baptism as something that unites Christians. It's sadly been a divisive factor in church history. But in the New Testament, we've got to come right back. I loved what John Gross was saying to us last evening. Let's go back. How was it 800 years ago then? As he said in that magnificent illustration that he used. In the New Testament, baptism accompanied conversion. It wasn't vital to salvation, as the man on the cross knew. He was saved today to be with Jesus. But in the normal Christian church life, it was a recognized accompaniment to conversion. One baptism. And it signifies many things we don't have time to deal with. A place of initiation, commitment, devotion, carrying with it the concept of the end of one life and the beginning of another. There was one baptism, one way in which they outwardly, visibly, wholeheartedly, sometimes at great cost, identified. Not just, oh, I agree with him a little, no, I'm in, count on me, I mean business, I express myself in baptism. One 
baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in all. What a statement. Obviously, one could spend, and there are preachers in this room, who could spend all this time just on this phrase. Lincoln says, Behind this acclamation lies that of Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.6, which was in turn a Christian modification of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. What does that mean? It means this. The great claim of Israel was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That was the distinctive thing about the Jewish people in contrast to all the nations that served their idols and their false gods and all the things they made which God mocked through the prophets like Isaiah. They, in contrast, said there is one God. And Paul himself, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, had embraced that all his religious life. Now, of course, he's got a battle with an emerging understanding of a trinity. And he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 8.5. He says, there are many so-called gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, we exist for him. And suddenly he puts against the Shema, against this holy Jewish statement, and one Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so he's saying here, Lincoln is saying, following on from that, it contains the characteristically Christian way of speaking about the one God as Father. Here in Ephesians, basically an affirmation of God's supreme transcendence above all. His pervasive imminence through all and in all. There is one God. And this quote stop as we draw to a close here. We must assert that there can only be one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope and baptism, only one Christian body, because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply God. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolably, inviolable? then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Now that's to have a very high view of the church. I remember a man in the state church speaking to me once and he thought I was a strange house church person, almost like a sect almost like a cult. After we had a little fellowship, he said, hey, he said, you have a very high view of the church. And I said, yes, I have a very high view of the church. But you only meet in the house. You only, at least we were in those days. Informal, unusual, not the way he expected it to be. But he suddenly understood that behind all the trappings and the guitars and the amplifiers and the overheads and the not dressing up, and the no stained glass windows, we had a very high view of the church. It's the glory of the whole earth. There's only one church, the true church of the living God. We fellowship with all our heart. The unity of the Godhead, expressed in the mystery of the diversity of the persons of the Trinity, 
There is not total uniformity between the three persons, but there is absolute unity. And there may well be mystery somewhat revealed there for us when we talk about attaining to unity and being... And you say, well, how can you see? What, what is your image, Terry, of a united church around the world? Well, it's very harsh. But I don't think it's meant to be cloned. If I can reverently say it, the Trinity is not cloned. There is absolute unity. You cannot divide. Absolute unity. But there is not uniformity between the persons. And perhaps there's a clue there for us in terms of how God will ultimately have what he regards and sees with his perfect assessment, a united church expressed in diversity, which is absolutely united in heart. Paul opens the way then to this majestic chapter on the church as Christ's body with an urgent appeal for humility and love, followed by a thoroughgoing argument for its essential unity because the church's roots are in the Trinity itself. In an age of disunity, and private and public selfishness and individualism, we must be consistent in our urgent desire to maintain true unity within the church. And one has to say this corollary, the church remembering the church of which Paul speaks consists of those described in the first three chapters. In other words, not all that is called church is what Paul would call church. When we're longing for unity, we must remember Paul has described who these people are. They're people who acknowledge, I was dead in sin. I was reconciled only through the blood of Christ. I was hopeless. Without God, without Christ, my only appeal is Jesus' death on the cross. My only appeal. So this is what he's describing as church. All those people who say, that's where my hope lies. It isn't everything that calls itself church that is appalled by talk about blood of Jesus. And appalled about talk about a cross. Appalled about talk about resurrection and yet calls itself church. Now I'm not saying that it's possible to unite those. We're talking about the church that Paul has been describing in his first three chapters. We're saying, oh God, let us express such unity, such oneness of heart that we can go on to see where he's going to take us by the hand in the next two studies, right through to the fullness of the stature of Christ to a mature man. But it starts by coming through a humble way, not forcing our way, bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving, giving away mercy, and remembering our roots go into this glorious God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glorious eternal hope that lies before us, the Spirit deeply witnessing we are going into that glorious future where we'll see him and be like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you invaded our foolishness, ignorance and willfulness with your glorious gospel. And we who would have been content to be alone, you have invited into the most wonderful family we could ever dream of. And we who are far off have been made near. Lord Jesus, accept our thanks and continue to give us strong motivation to build something that is wholly glorifying to you and brings you honor and honors the one who paid the price for our salvation. 
Lord Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We love to say, it's the Lord. And we say, Lord, keep coming to these meetings for your glory and for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.